Welcome to the Bunmi Chronicles podcast. This is Randy Kemp, host and creator of the podcast. I welcome you to my final season of the show with the theme titled Finishing the Crumbs, as I am officially wrapping up this year for good. I hope you enjoy the episodes for the season. Happy listening, everybody. Hey everyone, this is Randy. So today I am here with Butsada Ring. Butsada is an author and journalist whose work has appeared in the New York Times, Political, The Guardian, the San Jose Mercury News, and the Seattle Times, among other publications. Born in Cambodia and rural Oregon, Ring has lived in and worked in more than a dozen countries, including Cambodia, Afghanistan, and Thailand. She is an alumna of residencies at Hedgebrook, the Kimmel Harding Nelson Center for the Arts and Menno School, and she has received fellowships from the Alicia Patterson Foundation and Jack Straw Cultural Center. She is also the author of her current memoir, Ma and Me, which can be found anywhere. And welcome to the show. I just want to say I am just so appreciative of you uh, for being connected with you. And I read Ma and Me uh, a few months ago, and I reread it again just recently. And I want to say that as a queer person of Khmer descent, I am, you know, just so, um, I am really moved by your book. I, it resonated with me on many levels, uh, with family conflicts, with queerness, with the the um which I will talk about later on but some of my own experiences of feeling like I have to run away when I have to travel to get away from a lot of the problems that I was dealing with and uh and this is something that you touched on in your book but I want to say you know thank you so much for having this kind for being willing to have this conversation on and I'm looking forward to you know just chatting with you more about your memoir absolutely Randy it's um so exciting to be here and of course, uh, it's even more profoundly meaningful to me that you are also a queer Khmer person because on my uh, book tour uh, in the past year and speaking tour within the past year, uh, when I set uh, to uh, begin writing this memoir, when I set myself on that path, I think I could name maybe two queer my people I knew personally. Mm. Since then, that number has grown exponential, exponentially. And I think that uh, the, one of the reasons why is some people still haven't come out and we are just beginning to find each other in a lot of ways. And to me, the beauty of sharing such a personal story, albeit a difficult one to write, and I know it's also a difficult one to read, um, it's that we do ultimately find community and we find each other. And so one of the beauties and and uh, one of the deepest honors of of being here on your show, Randy, is is knowing that we have that thing in common, that this idea that um, we both decided we were going to reach for our own selfhood. Thank you. And I think it's such a important and brave act to to do uh, is to write our story and to make it accessible to the universe, uh, especially when a lot of times we don't get to hear our stories very often. And without our stories, it's hard to find community when we don't tell our stories. So, you know, thank you for amplifying that. And I hope that as you, you know, continue to share your story, I hope that you find more queer Kamai folks along the way, because I know that they're out there. And, and I feel that, and I, and, and they are, and I feel that when you put yourself out there, there is a sense that you're not alone in this. And, and you know, just reading your book, I felt less alone in my understanding about my own experiences. And so that, may, that means a lot. And I'd like to also talk about the cover of your book. Um, you have the crocodile and tiger connected in the cover of your book. And I was wondering if you could share what that meant or what it yeah, means. But- the cover is so beautiful and um the the artist for my publisher who created that cover i think immediately right out of the gate she started winning awards specifically for this cover which was really exciting to to see and um you know when when this cover 
came to me um, a handful of months before the book came out. And my friends who had had books published previously sort of gave me this warning that, you know, you're probably not going to like the first cover that your publisher sends you and um, just be prepared. And you got to figure out whether you're going to fight that or not, or, um, you know, what you want. Well, when I opened the PDF to see this cover, I actually, it brought me to tears. I started to cry because it captured so perfectly and so beautifully the central conflict and tension within this memoir. And so the book, um, and Randy, as you already know from reading it, um, and for your listeners out there who don't know, it does open with this saying in our country and in our culture and in our language, go in the water, there's the crocodile, and you come up on land, there's the tiger. Of course, the idea being in the American uh, way of saying it, when we get stuck between a rock and a hard place, what do we do? And this is kind of the the, the central conflict that follows uh, my story, my mother's story. Throughout the book, there are moments in which my mother faces this conflict of being stuck between two difficult decisions. And then, of course, there was the major moment that I came to of being stuck between two extremely difficult decisions of whether to marry my wife or whether to maintain absolute fidelity to my culture and try my best to find a man to marry, even though I understood and I knew since I was little that I was gay. And so in, in a sense, one of the central insights and questions that this book asks really has to do with how much of ourselves are we willing to shave off for others? Mm-hmm. What core pieces do we get to keep for ourselves? When my mom told me the saying, um, I didn't hear that saying until I began to interview my parents about their lives. She said it in the context of when she was young in her early 20s, and she was confronted with the prospect of being in an arranged marriage to my father, and she didn't want to be married. She had been educated, and as far as she was concerned, she had dreams, and being married was not one of them. But when she told me that saying, immediately I understood that I had to use it in the book. I didn't know I was going to begin my book with it, but I knew I had to use it. It's it's a powerful idea because who among us has never confronted that moment where we have two very, we're literally right in the middle of two very difficult decisions and choosing one option versus another has deep consequences for us. That is very profound. And I think I think when you talk about the the struggles between being stuck in a rock and a hard place, it is often the experience of so many Cambodians and many Southeast Asians, uh, especially including for younger generations who have not had to experience the genocide, um, the escape, but have had to deal with the residue, had to deal with the assimilation. So it's a so the rock and a hard place has continued on for several generations now. And I am very curious to know what finally prompted you to write about your relationship with your mom while writing about her story as well. Yeah. <laughs> that's Randy, I've got to admit that's a loaded question because I never actually wanted to write this memoir. Um, Indeed, I wanted to write a book. I thought all along it was going to be about my parents, and I intended to write about this notion of survivor's guilt. It was an idea that I became obsessed with in my late teens and early 20s because I began to recognize and understand by the time I got into college and then I got my first newspaper jobs right out of college, I began to understand that the way in which I was raised and and how I grew up in in my home with my parents, that our lives behind closed doors was shrouded in this PTSD. I didn't have a term for it back then when I was a kid, but later on I learned about it. Um, And beyond that, 
the more I learned about my country and the more I learned about the, the, the reason why my family was in America, and the more I learned about all of our relatives who had died in the genocide, I began to really seriously consider how my father in particular was so profoundly imprisoned in his own sense of survivor's guilt. And all along, up until the point that I had decided to write my book, I had read many books about Khmer's who had survived our country's war and genocide. Um, chief among them, of course, is Luang Ung's First They Killed My Father, which mm -hmm. shook me to my core. And Bang Luang is an amazing person, an amazing soul. And, and what's um, astonishing about her to this day, I feel so inspired by her, is that um, at some point along the way, she had made a decision in her life that she was not going to be the victim, but that she was going to make an intentional choice about her life, that she was going to find the joy and live with as much joy as possible. I mean, that being said, my parents weren't able to somehow make that shift for themselves. And so my parents were really stuck in this idea of survivor's guilt. But what happened was, as I was writing that book, um, this other conflict kind of reared its head. And that was a conflict that my mom and I had over me being gay. And um, it's a conflict that I didn't want to write about at all. However, when I moved to Seattle to be with my partner, who I did eventually marry, um, I left behind uh, an, a career in international media development. And I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do when I got to Seattle. But what she said to me back then, this would have been in 2014, 2015, she said, put, you know, you've been talking about wanting to write a book. Why don't you do that? And I thought, okay, I guess I might as well like get off of the journalism career track and do that. So I took this writing class here in Seattle at a place called Hugo House. Uh, and um, I want to say that the title of the class was something like personal narrative writing or something or personal essay. And one of the assignments we had, well, the last assignment from our teacher was write a 3000 word essay. And I raised my hand and asked, well, what's the topic? And I'll never forget the teacher at the time, Nicole Hardy, who herself is a, is a memoirist. She said to me, she shrugged her shoulders and she said, I don't know, write about a conflict. And I thought, oh, great. But I remember going home and telling April, my wife, about this. And I said, can you believe what kind of gall this woman has to just randomly tell us to write about a conflict? There's a lot of conflicts any of us have. But the one that was pressing at the moment was this profound pain that I had over um, the fight my mom and I were in because I was gay. It was a line that I was not willing to budge from. And my mom decided that she couldn't accept me um, for that. And so I ended up writing about that. It got published in the New York Times and thus began a journey that I had no idea was going to lead to this book. I had no idea was going to lead to a book tour and subsequent speaking tour. I had no idea the depth and um, in the amount of feedback I've gotten from all over the country and all over the world, actually, for this book. And so I clearly, I know I, I hit some nerves with it, but it was never a book that I had set out to write to begin with. So in that sense, um, it became a gift to me as much as I think it is a gift to the world in that way. You spoke about your near-death experience as a young child being on that boat. How has that come up for you in your relationship first with yourself and then with your mom? Mm, wow. Well, I've got to say, Randy, I've <laughs> I fielded a lot of questions in the past year and I've never had one quite like that. So I, I really appreciate the question and I appreciate your um, uh, your thoughtfulness on that. Uh, I had a lot of reckoning to go through um, regarding that near-death experience. You know, one of the things I think a lot about is this question that I grappled with while I was working on the book, but even before I was working on the book, that, uh, a question I was just grappling with in general, which is this question of what do 
what do you owe the woman who gave you life? And then in my case, it's what do you owe the woman who both gave me life and then saved my life? And so there's two levels of debt, I think, that uh, accrued within me regarding how I felt toward my mother, which is this cultural piece of because I was born as a Cambodian daughter, um, I was raised as well as my siblings that we owe our parents um, in a sense for raising us and bringing us into the world. And, and that's from a, a cultural standpoint. But then there's this other piece, which was that when my family did escape Cambodia on that boat, 23 days out at sea, um, my mom saved me. And the reason why I'm here is because she had just enough hope to fight for me when the captain of the ship thought that I had died and had asked my mom to throw me overboard. She had just enough hope to hang on to me. So I, I really, you know, all my friends, my family, they would describe me as a pretty hopeful person. And I, and I believe that to be true for myself as well. I am indeed the living embodiment of just enough hope. I wouldn't be here if my mom didn't have just enough hope for me. And so I think in that respect, the reckoning that I had to do for myself was that um, could I find a path for myself and could I find a way to live truly um, in the most authentic way I could, just as everybody else around me was, um, knowing that I sort of had this, this, this twin burden um, on my shoulders as well. And ultimately, I came to the conclusion that while I am a Khmer daughter, and I very much honor my culture and my country. I was also raised in America, which has its own different set of cultural norms and cultural codes. Up until the point that I wrote my book, I really saw things in binary. Something was either black or it was white. Something was either true or it was false. Mm -hmm. um, I never really saw the shades of gray in between. And it was actually my editor who really kind of opened the Pandora's box on uh, encouraging me and ultimately empowering me to see those shades of gray because my um, the reconciliation that I, that I ended up coming to for myself was ultimately that, yes, my mother saved me and, and I could be grateful for that, but it didn't mean that I owed her my life because she saved mine. Um, mm. I think what's hard and... Um, and I think that what makes this such a hard question, but also such a beautiful question um, is that I don't think that my mom has been able to get across to the other side of that kind of thinking. I think that she herself thinks that I owe her um, still, even to this day, that I owe her so much for what she did for me um, and for saving me and for raising me. Mm. Um, and so it, it there there becomes this question that is unanswered in my book and that I continue to grapple with, which is that how, how do we come to a middle ground in that kind of scenario? Wow, yeah, it's it's very much the struggle that so much one point five and second generation of Cambodian Americans struggle with their own parents is that we owe something to them, despite the harm, the trauma that they pass on to us. We oftentimes, like I say this too, because I had that conflict with my own parents, you know, my mom being a survivor of the Vietnam War, my dad having survived part of the Vietnam War, and then the Khmer Rouge, I feel like there is this debt that I will never be able to pay back, mm. uh, whether it's because I did not become a lawyer or the fact that I became a very different person, I became a queer person, we became things that our parents fear but mm -hmm. also that we um are still in payment of in, in a way and it gets harder as they get older too because the reconciliation is not always there for us mm -hmm. when we need it to happen right and i i'm speechless because i'm still i I have sometimes I can be close with them. Then there are mm -hmm. times when I can be very distant and distant is something that a lot of us tend to resort to when we struggle, uh, when we um, when we are in a holding pattern between payment 
of our parents and empathy, payment and empathy for our parents, for what they've gone through, for what they've given to us. But at the same time, our own liberation, our own sense of self. And, you know, there's a quote from your book that I would love to read. And what you wrote was, there are times when my mother tells me too much story. When I ask for one detail, she gives me a dozen. And within those dozens, I am left feeling inadequate or guilty or hopeless all over again. This is the danger then in asking too many questions. You cannot control the answers. You cannot unhear the things you already heard. You cannot unknow the incredible sorrow you caused your mother. Now, I remember when I met Ocean Vung several years ago at his uh, poetry book signing, I asked him about the challenge of asking your refugee parents about their traumatic past. And he responded by saying, to ask them is considered betrayal. Mm-hmm. often feel that guilt and how do you navigate the difficulties in hearing about their past that in a way is so connected to how you've been raised mm, yeah oh that pain is in me I, I I say that unequivocally the pain of hearing my mother's stories and the pain of holding hers as well and knowing that I had re- traumatized both her and my father by asking questions but you know I think that what made things a little bit easier for me, or I don't even know if easier is the right word, but uh, I guess I want to answer the question this way is that I feel like in some ways, my chosen profession is as a journalist. I learned very early on to um, to ask questions and, and to ask really good questions. But even before I became a journalist, even before I understood that that was going to be my professional path, um, I was always that kid who who had so much curiosity um, I always ask my my mom, you know, but, you know, questions that were pretty simple. You know, why was this guy blue? I asked her so many why questions that at some point she would just get annoyed with me and she would say, "Oh my God, here she here comes put again. Why won't? Why won't? That's all she wants to know. Why won't? Why won't?" And so and she still says things like that to me, <laughs> um, even now because I still have a lot of questions for her. Um, but it it was just this tremendous curiosity that led me to this place of interviewing my parents. But I think that um, there are a couple of, of thoughts that I have um, regarding you know, how, how best to answer your question. One of them is that it's, it's, it's really tricky terrain for those of us who are children of refugees and refugees ourselves uh, to, um, to ask our parents to go backwards and tell parts of their stories. Um, specifically because we run the risk, and I know I did this with my parents, of indeed re-traumatizing our parents um, or our elders, who, whoever it is we are putting the questions to. Um, and at the same time, part of me wants to believe that as a child, it is, in fact, my birthright to know about my past and to know about um, my growing up years and my youth, things that I don't, maybe I don't have memories of, and but to know about my family and to know about my history. I believe that that is my birthright. And so in a way, it's this constant balancing of how much harm am I potentially going to do by asking these questions in the name of my own curiosity, in the name of me trying to discover who I am and trying to figure out where I belong and where I fit in. And that so much of how I was raised, I didn't really understand how complicated and how complex my parents' parenting was until I began to ask them. Like how complex is it and how complicated is it to be cleaved suddenly from your homeland and to wind up in a whole other country and suddenly your kids who you you never imagined were going to grow up anywhere other than your homeland, in our case, that was Cambodia, suddenly the rules have changed and the culture is different and suddenly you find yourself as parents raising your kids in this new environment. And in that respect, uh, I think that my, my parents, they indeed, they did sacrifice so much in terms of 
how much access do I, as their daughter, um, have to their lives? You know, really, my decision came down to, I would ask the questions. And if it was clear that either my mother or my father, um, it, it was just too painful for them to answer, I didn't go back and ask again. Whereas the journalist to me, the if I had been going in as a professional journalist, I would have kept digging. I would have been persistent. And I'm, I'm known in my profession and to since I was a kid, to be persistent. I think actually at a at a um, boot camp, summer boot camp for high school journalism students, I won the the persistence award. <laughs> I'm sure of it. Um, but I think that one of the things I also talk about in my book is that there is a there is a violence to silence. And I think for for those of us who are straddling so many different worlds and trying our best. Um, to balance our cultures and our countries. We've got to figure out a way to break these silences because to live in that kind of silence is really, in fact, we're, we are just living in a cage. It's not unlike the silence of being gay and being in a closet. And at some point, the decision has to be made, well, do you want to continue to live in that silence or live at, and or live in that closet? Or do you honor yourself enough to come out of that closet and to come out of that silence and to ask the questions and to, and to live as you are? There's always going to be a cost. And in this case, the emotional cost was very high for me, for my parents, for anybody that I interviewed, honestly. But I think that the costs were worth it. I think they were as painful mm -hmm. as the process was. Yeah, thank you for taking us into a deep dive into your own process. Uh, I also have to say that we are also approaching 50 years since the beginning of the Khmer Rouge and the end of the Vietnam War. And I also look at it as time is also not on our side when it comes to hearing stories from our adult survivors of that era, because they are in their 70s, they are aging, and a lot of them are dying, um, unfortunately. And and when you talk about being a journalist, but you feel like you have to pursue and persist on stories at no matter the cost. I feel like there's a part of me, especially when I work with when I work with survivors as a board member for the Cambodian Museum up in Chicago and um and also, you know, working the storytelling scene for a little while, there's a sensitivity about me not wanting to probe on where probe on people's vulnerabilities, especially when they're not quite ready and where and when their stories can really re-trigger them. So it's also like straddling the line of being empathetic, but also trying to find ways to unearth the truth before it's too late. So it's it's a constant battle because I think when you're dealing with survivors, there are many people in their 70s that are still not having that conversation with their children, adult children. And um, and sometimes it can happen and sometimes it stays with them into, into the grave. Right, right. Yeah. And I think that, you know, to me, in those instances where people go to their their graves with their stories, I feel such such deep regret in those moments because I feel like, there was a lost opportunity for us to know our loved ones in a different way or in a deeper way or even in a better way. And, and in that lost opportunity of knowing our loved ones, we're losing in a sense an opportunity to know more parts of ourselves and, and more of who we are in that way. I, I so appreciate you bringing up that we are indeed next year coming up on the 50th anniversary of the war on the genocide. That sense of urgency I really, I really feel it so strongly. I think had it not been for my father to have his heart attack, maybe it would have taken even longer for my parents to actually want to tell me some of their stories and open up to tell me some of their stories. I think in that moment when both of them were suddenly confronted with their own mortality vis-a-vis -vis my father's medical crisis, um, I think that they both had to very quickly evaluate their lives and realize if I die, and this was you know, the case for my father, 
um, my kids aren't going to know anything about how we got to America and why we came here and anything about our lives, really. And so it just kind of opened a floodgate of information and stories. But I just hope that for other Khmer's out there and other survivors of other difficult and challenging um, events in their lives, that we don't wait for a health crisis. So we don't wait until we're kind of, you know, whispers away from, from our own deaths. Um, to me, there's, there's an incredible power in sharing our stories right now. I, I will say in my case, um, one of the unexpected results and I would even call it a reward of me asking my parents questions and asking them to share their stories is that I began to see my parents in a different light that I hadn't seen them before. And in that different light, the door really opened for forgiveness and understanding and compassion mm -hmm. that didn't exist before. What I mean by that specifically is that um, I grew up pretty um, resentful of my father for the violence he brought into our home. But when I began to ask him questions and then I learned, oh my God, this man, actually my father, who was not trained for combat, was sent to the front lines to fight the Khmer Rouge. What does that do to a man mentally and spiritually and emotionally? And that's when I began to soften toward him. And that's when I began to think, oh, he's not just like this mean dad who I grew up with. He's this amazing person who has done incredible things, who also happened to have a profoundly traumatic experience that he mm. kind of shoved deep inside and, and it man manifested, unfortunately, in violence in our home. But to, but I would never have gotten there if I didn't ask him the questions, if I didn't know more of his story. And I think that, you know, when we talk about the, the risks and the emotional toll of potentially re-triggering survivors. I think we can't have that conversation without also having the conversation about how sharing personal stories change the way that we think about and feel about and honor and perceive people in our lives and people who we love. It feels incredibly relatable because my father and I struggled for years and years because when you get to hear their stories, then you start to uncover or start to piece together where things went wrong, where where the lack of understanding that you've carried for so long starts to make sense. Well, I wouldn't necessarily make say makes sense because when you come from a parent who can be violent towards you, can have harmful effects on you. It doesn't necessarily make sense, but it helps to inform your process of your understanding of how this came to be. And also, and also in a way that helps you to respond differently. Mm -hmm. And I felt like that's what I had to do the last several years, you know, with my dad. And, you know, you mm -hmm. shared about your dad's mental breakdown. And I thought about my father, who was also a survivor of the Khmer Rouge, having that mental breakdown years ago. And what have you learned from your dad and the Cambodian men you've experienced in your life and how they've dealt with the genocide and the assimilation process in America? Mm -hmm. Um, they're still not dealing with it well, as far as I, I mean, from a personal Same standpoint. Same with mine. <laughs> yeah, see? <laughs> In fact, um, I don't think I've met a Khmer man who has really dealt well. And what I mean by dealing well, of course, is that, you've, you know, I've got to put this into the context. And the context being, my mind is very much, uh, uh, and, and sentiment is very much a Western style sentiment and mind. And so when I talk about um, um, coping well with, um, traumatic experiences, particularly surviving something like a war and or a genocide. Um, the overlay that I'm putting on that is the Western overlay of, I wish my dad would have seen a counselor and, and would have had um, a way to really work through a lot of those, um, those dark memories and, and um, those really traumatic memories he had of being on the front lines. Um, but 
I also recognize and understand that culturally speaking, that's not something that our Khmer culture and Khmer men were raised to do, to, to talk about their emotions. And so far as I can tell, I was raised with the understanding that talking about one's emotions was a very privileged thing. And meanwhile, my family was just busy trying to survive. And so in that sense, where does, where, where does that leave us? But I think that, um, you know, one of the things that um, I noticed about my father is that when I begin to ask him to tell me about his life and to tell me stories, and also when I begin to interview his best friend in Cambodia and some of his other friends and, and cousins and family members who I met while I lived and worked in Cambodia as a journalist, I begin to see a very multifaceted man. And one of the things that really put a smile on my face was um, a story that I had heard that my father was always at any wedding that he and my mother were, were invited to, the first to show up on the dance floor and the last to leave. He just liked to have fun. And I see, and I have seen glimmers of that here in America. I haven't seen him in his whole self like that, but I see glimmers of it. I see pieces of it when, when my nieces and nephews, his grandchildren were little tiny beings, you know, um, how much love he had for them and carry, caring for them. And I see that when he's, when my father is surrounded by his friends and they're having a beer in the backyard. And I think what, what affects me very deeply is that I wish he could just have more of that. And I wish that there was a way he wasn't, I wish there was a way he could get unlocked and I don't have the answer for how he would. Yeah, it's, it's a, it's an ongoing struggle. And I think that's something that we still have to, um, learn to I don't like to say the word accept because I don't know if I'm quite there in accepting that but it's also it's for us to hold that and and yeah I'm sometimes I'm at a loss for words when it comes to figuring out my dad uh and in your situation with your father too because because there's also so much factors you're talking about Cambodia's uh, masculine toxic masculinity and we're talking about all kinds of hierarchy and there, there's so much that plays into it that is so hard to crack down and to to understand and and especially when you couple that with trauma it, it becomes such a beast to try to even attempt to uh, to weed through and and find some some way of you know understanding between father and son, father, daughter, father's um, offspring. So just, yeah. So I also want to say that there's also another quote that I like from your book that I also want to share, which also goes into trauma. Mm -hmm. You quoted as saying, I thought about how trauma has a before and an after, that we cannot be the same as who we were at the start before trauma burned its brand into our lives how it ricochets from one generation into the next and how some of us are bedeviled from the start, burdened with the bad luck to carry more of it than others. That mm -hmm. was very, it's incredibly powerful when I read that quote. And as you know, there's gender, there's intergenerational trauma in our Southeast Asian communities, specifically with the Khmer community. And how does one begin to recognize the trauma that we inherited and how do we break these traumatic cycles? Mm. Yeah, the, both of those questions are are so good. Um, you know, in terms of how how to recognize the trauma that's being passed down, so much of how I understood that I had inherited trauma from my parents, I actually learned from my sister, um, who. Um, she she works at University of Washington, but she's always I've always held her you know, in very high esteem as sort of the scholar of our family and the person who's kind of at the forefront and the vanguard of learning about these new ideas. And I'm I'm almost certain she's the first one who um, said the word inherited trauma to me, and and something just shifted in me because instantly when she said it, my mind went backwards back to childhood and back to everything that fit and aligned with this idea of inherited trauma. And what I mean by that is 
if I go back into my childhood, I can see very clearly um, pieces of trauma that my parents experienced and that it manifested in our lives. Growing up in Corvallis, Oregon, for example, my mom always buying meat on discount and putting in the freezer. This idea that she could she can never not have because she doesn't know when there might be another war and when there might not be food. So it's kind of stockpiling. And frankly, I've got a deep freezer in our basement and I stockpile also. And mm -hmm. how and how do I how do I for myself shift my mentality to recognize, no, I'm not in Cambodia, I'm not in war, I'm not growing up in Corvallis, Oregon with my parents anymore. I'm actually in a safe space and a safe place, but how to find that safety for myself and that shift in, in my own being to recognize that I'm not living in scarcity anymore. I'm actually living in great abundance, hmm. um, but there's, but that is inherited. It's what I watched growing up with my parents and it's who I became also. And so there's a lot of unlearning and unpacking, I think that has to happen. Um, and then in terms of how to, how to, um, I'm going to, I'm not going to remember exactly your words. It wasn't how to combat that, but how to, how to resolve some of the, the inherited trauma was at the question. Right, right. Yes. To me, I believe so much of it is talking to each other. Um, I also, I'm a very firm believer in, uh, in therapy and I have a counselor also. Um, and I think that it's just wherever we can find community with each other, wherever we can find understanding on whatever level we can engage with our own stories. I think it, so much of that kind of builds on itself to help us um, resolve some of these, um, some of these very deep, um, uh, experiences that we've got passed down vis-a-vis um, -vis our parents. And even I would say before our parents, I would say even our grandparents and before then our great grandparents, you know, part of my family story has to do with um, my family has been on the run from many generations ago with ancestors fleeing from China and ending up in Cambodia. Mm. And um, so, you know, I'm not terribly surprised that um one of my escapes and and something that I do um, to to kind of cope with stress or to meditate and relax is that I, I physically run. I head for the hills and I go on a long trail run, um, but there are different types of running and running away. And most of my life has been running away. I want to shift that now. And if I do any running now, I would like to run too, rather than away from. Um, but all of that is just so much of it has to do with having the courage and having the vulnerability to dive deep into our interior worlds and understand parts of who we are and, and to own our own wounds, but then to also release the wounds that don't belong to us. In other words, I, for many years of my life, held my mother's wounds for her and I began to confuse hers with mine. And going through the process of writing the book, but also going through the process of just becoming an adult, um, I realized, no, I actually, I have my pain and my wounds to hold and she's got hers and I can't be the bearer of her pain and mine also. We can, we are only responsible for, for our own wounds. Mm. I wanted to take a shift here and, you know, you shared about being queer back in the 90s during the backdrop of the AIDS crisis, uh, well before the Gay Marriage Act. And what can you tell us what it was like to be both queer and Khmer back then? Were there spaces that you felt more belonging in or was it an isolating experience? Yeah. Um, in the 90s, I lived in the Bay Area. So I was very much gay out loud in the 90s and in my in my um, 20s living in the Bay Area and that's because I was living in a place where there was critical mass of LGBTQ plus folks and I would say as far as where I felt the most belonging it was probably there in the Bay Area it was where I felt less targeted it's where I felt comfortable it's where I felt safe and again that that goes to the point that there was just acceptance, so much acceptance in the Bay Area uh, for uh, 
for queer people like me. Um, interestingly, when I left the Bay Area, um, I left to move to Cambodia to work as a journalist. And even though I had already come out to my friends and my family in America, I went right back into the closet when I got to Cambodia. And the reason why is, um, well, uh, there are a few reasons why, frankly, fear was chiefly among the reasons why. I was afraid of, of how my relatives would view me if they knew I was gay. Um, and, you know, my relatives, as it was, said a lot of very condescending things about gay people in Cambodia. Um, I was worried how it might potentially affect me um, career-wise. Um, I was worried about how I was going to fit in within the context of my own homeland, Cambodia, if I were to live openly gay in Cambodia. And so I was in the closet. I didn't, I, I told a handful of friends while I was living in Cambodia, um, ex, other expat friends knew I was gay, but I kind of kept things under a wrap there. I don't regret it necessarily, but what I think about it in hindsight now is I, I kind of, I wish I had had the courage to live my true self back then, because frankly, to be in the closet, it's such a, it's such a burden to carry when, when, when we're left walking around and engaging in the world around us with that kind of secret to hold, you know, I just wish that I could have been who I was. And I wish that for any queer person in Stroke Khmer or any queer Khmer person here in America or in the diaspora, um, really, is that you, you used the word liberation before, and I'm and I'm going to call upon that word again. We've got to find a way to liberate ourselves. You know, this this burden is breaking us. Mm. In your book, you have such a tug of war in your relationship with your mom over your sexual identity. What was her understanding of queerness, and why do you think she has had such a resistance to your relationship with your partner? Yeah, that is that's also another really fantastic question. Thank you for that. Um, I th you know my mom's exposure to um, the queer community was pretty limited, you know, in, in the context of, you know, first of all, in Cambodia, she was not exposed to my, to my knowledge anyways, to any gay people. And then suddenly we arrive in Corvallis, Oregon, which um, here we go landing in a pretty conservative community um, in the Willamette Valley in Oregon um, farm community. And so there were a lot of layers of, conservative um, uh, upbringing. It's being raised within a conservative culture, my, my culture. It's being raised within a conservative community, which is Corvallis, Oregon. Um, and so in that respect, I don't know that my mom was ever exposed to any anything related to the queer community other than Sometimes I would I would come home from college and I would see her watch Ellen the Ellen DeGeneres show. Now I knew that she knew what gay was because she would she would make some side comments about you know this this woman who, who um, loves other women she doesn't understand but whatever she's an entertaining figure on TV. Um, but interestingly, I, you know, to the extent that my mom was exposed to anybody who's queer, it would have been on TV. And I say that because very recently, one of the things that has happened with Matt and me um, being out in the world is that some of my old high school buddies that I lost track with over the years have gotten in touch with me. And so I've had an opportunity to um, reconnect and re-engage with some of my high school friends. And I've asked each of them, in addition to my siblings, can you name me one the name of one person in our school, our entire high school, who's gay? My friends couldn't name somebody. My siblings couldn't name somebody. Now, honestly, there's no way that there's not any, there were not any gay people in my high school. It's just that nobody was willing to, to come out or nobody, nobody really wanted to, to, um, to exist in that way and be targeted, potentially targeted. Um, and so I think that that says so much about this, sort of vacuum that my mom was living in when it comes to queer people. And so 
my understanding um, of her experience with the queer community was that it is was not only deeply limited, um, but that um, similar to so many other people, my mother was frankly very ignorant about the LGBTQ plus community. And I think from ignorance, that is where fear comes and that's fear of the unknown. And that's where, and when there's fear, there is resistance. And I think because she was so um, unaware or had had such little information about the queer community, I think it, I, in that respect, it was really hard for her to accept me. And so looking back, I don't begrudge her for having a challenging time accepting having a gay daughter. Um, in fact, if anything, I extend a lot of grace to her because I recognize she has been always doing the best she could to raise her kids in America. And there are so many compromises that you have to make as a parent and specifically as a mother when you are an immigrant or actually to be, to be more specific, you are a refugee raising your children in another country. And so my mother's lack of acceptance of having a gay daughter is not rooted in hate. It's not rooted in, um, you know, she's not disgusted by it. She, she just doesn't know about the, the queer community. She doesn't know about this. She doesn't really know about my life. She doesn't recognize that, yes, though I may be married to a woman, um, I cut the lawn on a Saturday morning, just like my neighbors do. And I like, I am still fundamentally the same person. It's just that I, we have a different family structure than what she knows about. Um, so there are a lot of different pieces there. And, and I think ultimately, um, if, if there's any takeaway from either my, my story or my book, um, it's that we've got to extend grace to each other um, when there's, when, when people just don't have the knowledge of, of, mm -hmm. Uh, other communities. How does your mom feel about you as a queer person now? And how does, and what does your relationship look like now, nowadays? Yeah, <laughs> such a good question. I'm going to Cambodia with my mom this weekend, actually, on Sunday. Wow. My family, 23 of us total. Um, uh, my mom, I, you know, I think that ultimately she loves her daughter more than she hates having a gay daughter. Um, my mom quickly realized that she could, you know, if, if she, if she chose to, um, if she chose to be disconnected to me, she would be losing her daughter, her baby and the family. Um, and and so she's not disconnected to me. I, you know, when when we hang, hang out and see each other, and I've visited my folks um, a couple of times since the book came out, um, my feeling and my sense about where she stands on, on me being gay is that um, she's not fully accepting of me, but she'll tolerate, she's tolerant. I would say she's she's very tolerant. And for me, I've learned to accept tolerance. I don't need to have acceptance necessarily. Um, I I feel like I you know I can be okay with just having my, my mom let me have letting me be in her life with whatever parameter she's comfortable with. And I'm not gonna I'm not gonna force a relationship, in, you know, in any one direction or any one way. I just want to be in her life. You know, she, she's the only mother I have. I'm her baby. Um, I can't imagine my life without her in it. Thank you for sharing that about your mom. And and I absolutely appreciate this deep dive that we are having uh, to this point. And, you know, you mentioned in your book of having lived in Cambodia, Afghanistan, Thailand, and Seattle. Do you often feel that you were purposely distancing yourself from your family because of your queerness? I asked this question because I had lived in Korea in my mid-20s and I felt part of me leaving was to run away from the unresolved issues I had with my queer identity. So it was something that resonated with me, this idea of travel. Like, it was fun, it was exciting, but it was also at times some of the loneliest periods I've dealt with mm -hmm. because I felt like I was like not... Because every time I thought about home, 
I thought about the unresolved issues that were still present, you know, whether it's with my queer identity, whether it's with my parents' trauma, um, and with my own sense of Americanness that I was struggling with. So I I I pose this question because I wonder if this is something that that you were purposely distancing yourself from when these issues arise, when you go into places that are not necessarily the most safest. And also, also it's kind of like the reverse from, in a way, I don't know if betrayal is the right word too, but for your parents to land you in what they thought would be safe harbor for you only to have you turn back and go into places that that they would typically escape from right yeah um in the case of going to afghanistan my mom had such a hard time with that because she literally told me she said why would you choose to go to a war when you when we brought you safely from one already totally fair you know i i i was totally called out and right rightfully so she she was correct in that front um but to your question absolutely I ran away from myself when I left the U.S. and was traveling all around the world um I ran away from myself because I was myself so uncomfortable with who I was as a queer person it took me a long time and a lot of years to come to grips with that and to reconcile that. And what's interesting is that even though I had come out to my friends and my family in my early twenties, it doesn't mean that you're perfectly comfortable with yourself still. In my case, um, I was actually deeply uncomfortable with myself still. And so much of that has to do with society and, and um, societal norms. We are, we are now currently living in a society where our LGBTQ plus community continues to be under attack. And so what kind of messaging is that giving to other young people who like me in my twenties saw that and really internalized that and internalized the shame that, that, that comes from being a target in that way. Um, now I'm, I'm not saying that I was targeted for being gay, but when I was seeing stories and, reading about and and knowing um, others within my queer community who were targeted, I it's not something that you can't help but take personally as a queer person. And so indeed, I, uh, my travel, so much of it had to do with running away. I'm not sure that I had a, the same experience as you, Randy, when you described loneliness. I think that for me, one of the reasons why I stayed abroad for as long as I did um, was because I, I actually, I wasn't lonely. I was actually finding who I was. And interestingly, even in countries where I didn't speak the language, those are the countries where I felt the least lonely. It's hard for me to really articulate why that is, other than to say that for me, I think because so much of my life I have felt in terms of my identity on the edge of places and on the edge of things, that being out in the world in places where um, the culture is different from my own or the language is different from my own. To me, that felt more like belonging than it does being here in America, actually. I vowed not to come back home to America, actually, until I met April, my wife. And then I thought, oh boy, you know, well, I could have her, you know, follow me around in my globe-trotting life and, um, and, and hope that um, she'll go for that or I could come back home to America. And I and I made the decision to come back home and I'm, I'm really glad that I did. Um, but I think that so much of what we as either brown skin people or queer people, anybody who um, has ever felt othered, I think so often what we are running from is that shame. And I, I, th I think we can't have these kinds of discussions without talking about that big elephant in the room. And then how do how do we navigate shame and how do we reconcile and reckon with the deep shame? And I don't really have any wise words to offer other than to talk about my own experiences with shame and ultimately realizing that I am enough. I'm enough for me. 
um, I'm worthy of this life just as anybody else is. Um, and that I don't have to continue to prove myself in a way. And I hope that others um, are able to, to get to that place within themselves as well. What gives you joy now? And what does being a queer Cambodian American now feel like to you? Mm, yeah, joy is, joy, is, joy is pretty simple for me in terms of um, <laughs> a daily practice. And um, being out in nature really sparks my joy. Um, seeing bald eagles, which happens where we live um, here just outside of Seattle, um, almost on a daily basis. Um, but one of the greatest joys that I have um, continues to be just being with my nieces and nephews and spending time with them and telling them stories and hearing about their lives and, and hearing about their struggles, because we're talking about now, you know, that next generation and I have 10 nieces and nephews. All of them are half Khmer and half something else, either half white or half Mexican. Or, and so they they um, are biracial kids or multiracial kids. And it's it's always a joy for me to sit and talk with my nieces and nephews and hear about their experiences and their lives. And know also that they recognize apart from their parents, there's one other adult in the world who loves them unconditionally, and that's their aunt. And also to know that when my wife and I got married, my nieces and nephews, um, they were still quite young. You know, the youngest was what probably six, six or seven. Um, the youngest two. That our wedding was the first wedding, gay wedding that they went to, and to have them go to a gay wedding at such a young age was so important, because to me it felt like they have that foundational understanding that to, to marry somebody of the same sex is perfectly normal. Their aunt put did it. It's totally fine. Um, and so, yeah, I, I will never, I will never cease to find joy in spending time with my nieces and nephews. Where can we follow your work and what other projects are you working on? It's <laughs> a good question. You know, I, so um, I'm terrible at, at updating my website, so don't look there, but um, you know, sometimes when I do have um, public talks, I'll post it. I'll post it across social media. So I'm, I'm, um, I'm an irregular user of social media. But when I do have uh, some kind of public event, uh, I try to post that. And um, I'm going to try to be better at doing that on my website as well. But between now and the next several months, I have more um, public talks coming up. Um, some are, are or excuse me, talks coming up. Some are public and some are not. And those that are public, I'll try to put out there for folks to engage with. Um, right now, I'm, I'm really working on a couple of um, stories that don't have to do with my life, that have to do with other people's lives. Um, so getting back a little bit to my journalism roots in that way. Um, and um, I'm mulling over and, and taking notes and doing some pre-writing on another book project. Um, I'm not quite sure which direction it's going to go yet, so I, I don't want to talk about it quite yet. Um, but I'm giving myself um, this time, post-publication of my book, we're a year out um, since my book was published, um, just to continue to, to, to speak about these really critical issues and to continue to um, expand and build my queer my community, which is so exciting for me. Yeah, and as we start to wrap up, one final question is, uh, if you had to talk to your five-year-old self, what would you say to that person? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, five-year-old self. I would tell that little kid, you're going to be okay. You're going to be just fine. And I would also tell that kid, keep climbing those trees if you want to climb the trees. Eat all the candy that you want, <laughs> despite what your mom says. Um, find that happiness it's there that's what I would tell that kid I think that that kid was so caught up in in the the heaviness and the and the weight of living within a, a family that was beset with trauma that even at that young age of five years old I forgot that there was joy out there so I would tell that kid find that joy cling to it and and um Get as much as you can. I want to say thank you so much for this beautiful introspection, for willing 
to take us into your beautiful journey. I know that there's so much more to talk about, but I also want to say, you know, from the bottom of my heart, I really enjoyed this conversation tremendously. And I hope that audiences will get a chance to buy a copy of Ma and Me, which is currently out. Um, if not, you can also order it from your library. Please request it and support your li public libraries as well. Um, but overall, what a wonderful conversation we had. And I truly wish you the best of luck in your journey. And we, I can't wait to see what comes next. And I really appreciate this friendship that we fought, that we began to uh, to develop, you know, the last few months. And I can't wait to see what comes next. Absolutely. Thank you, Randy. This was so fun to have this conversation with you.